Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Thriller Crypto. Today, we're talking Ripple on CNN. We also have uh, Ripple discussing an XRP fork. I'm not joking around. And then finally, in the main topic, we're discussing the next bull run, baby. That's right. Bitcoin's next bull run. We're going to talk all about it in the main topic. Thriller Crypto. Yeah, starting now. Boys and girls from around the world, how you doing today? September 13th, 2019. And we're starting off the show talking about Ripple. Yeah, it's going to be a great one. <laughs> so we have Julia Shatterley. She's with the CNN. And uh, man, she went after Brad Garlinghouse. He's the CEO of Ripple in this interview. And they discuss the XRP community taking over. They talked about Ripple dumping. <laughs> they go into how many banks are actually using XRP. Yeah, the whole gamut. Check it out. So it basically goes, Bank Brad has dollars. Dollars get transferred to XRP. Then XRP is transferred to Sterling, and Sterling then hits Bank Julia. That's how it works. Th that's, that's exactly right. And so from a consumer point of view and how we're working with, for example, a MoneyGram, the consumer itself doesn't actually see that it's flowing through XRP to solve the problem. What the consumer sees is simply a better product at a better price. That's good for MoneyGram, that's good for MoneyGram's customers. And so we're seeing more momentum than we've ever had around using XRP to, to move this liquidity around the world. And so we couldn't really be happier about how that has played out in a world where there's still a lot, I think, of FUD, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt about what's going on in crypto. This is a real use case solving a real problem for real customers. Okay, so which banks right now are actually using Ripple? About two, over 200 banks around the world. Some of those banks just use our software to do that debit and credit fiat to fiat. And some of them are using XRP in those flows. Uh, we have banks like Satander that we've been working with for years and are moving lots of volume uh, through, through the Ripple's technology. And then as I mentioned earlier, uh, payment providers like MoneyGram or RIA or Asimov that are using XRP actually to move that liquidity uh, and really reducing their costs and improving the product. Just in terms of the transactions though that you're seeing using Ripple, what proportion of those actually use XRP versus direct? And just where do you see that ratio going? I'm just trying to get a sense of, of, sort of how much yeah. XRP itself is actually used as part of the Ripple platform. So I would say you know, the order of magnitude way to think about it is similar to the proportion of customers. So uh, if we've got you know, I don't know a couple hundred customers we have launched, 10 to 15 of them uh, we've talked about using XRP, you know, I, I would use that ratio as the, the total ratio between what's happening with Ripple's technology overall. I saw some uh, Twitter traffic, one in particular, Crypto BitLord, that threatened to take over. Um, because they say that, that you, the company, is dumping, that you're pushing supply out to the market. Can you explain to me the difference between 
XRP and, and Bitcoin with regards supply and with regards sure. how much ownership Ripple itself actually has as a proportion of XRP out there at this moment? Okay, so the first thing to understand is these are all open source technologies. When people talk about you know, forking technologies, you have seen Bitcoin forked multiple times. You have Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin uh, BSV, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin, I can't name them all. There's four or five forks of the Bitcoin blockchain. Bitcoin, obviously, the primary BTC has remained kind of the, the, the most notable. But in the same way, people can take XRP and open source technology and hypothetically they could fork that if they chose to do so. Now, around the ownership piece, as is the case with Bitcoin, there's some big whales that were early in the Bitcoin community. Uh, you know, there's one wallet that has a million Bitcoin in it. Nobody knows who owns it. In the XRP community, Ripple is the largest owner. And the point I have made is we are the most interested party in the success of the XRP ecosystem. We're very focused on our use case and how do we solve problems with XRP. But one of the things I'm excited about is you're seeing a growing ecosystem of other players investing in other use cases around XRP. Just recently, we announced a partnership with Coil, which is doing micropayments for content. So next time you're reading a story on the Financial Times website and you hit that paywall, you hypothetically just pay, hey, here's a, here's a dime, here's a quarter, here's 50 cents. Where today, you know, that's a pretty hard problem. And it, companies like Coil are going to use XRP for those micropayment transactions. So yes, Ripple owns a lot of XRP. We're very interested in the success of XRP. But uh, the, the accusations of us dumping, you know, that's not in our best interest to do that. You know, we're clearly interested in a, a healthy, successful ecosystem. And so we would never do that. And in fact, have taken steps to lock up most of the XRP we own in escrow such that we can't touch it. Interesting. So, but you agree that you can control the price to some degree because ultimately oh, no. the, the Ripple community has so much power, no? No, I mean, if you look at the correlations between XRP and most of the crypto market, what are often called the altcoins, you see a very high degree of correlation. You know, uh, Ripple can't control the price of XRP any more than, uh, you know, what the whales can control the price of Bitcoin. You know, some of these markets, particularly smaller tokens that are, you know, have a lower market cap and lower float, if you will, uh, you know, they are at risk of people manipulating them. But, you know, you're talking about, XRP trades, you know, order of magnitude, a billion dollars, according to coin market cap, trades, you know, on order of magnitude, a billion dollars a day of activity. So I don't think anybody's in a position to really manipulate those prices. It's quite funny. One of the big questions that I was asked when I was talking to people about XRP, they said, what price do you sell XRP to, to the financial institutions that you're dealing with here? Do you give, do you give them a discount and, and is there a no. lockup? Can you answer those questions? Because this kept coming up. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, let's use MoneyGram as the example. When MoneyGram is moving money from U.S. dollar to Mexican peso, they're buying at market. They're, they're not, there's no you know, special sweetheart deal there. There are times when we work with institutional investors who might say, hey, we want to buy $10 million of XRP, and we would have lockups that would prevent them from dumping. You know, We don't want some other party buying a whole lot of XRP and dumping on the market. And so we would hypothetically have restrictions about what they could sell and, and what, uh, you know, how, how often. And usually those are based upon volume in the market. Yeah, so you, you might give them it slightly cheaper, but you say to them, hey, you're not allowed to sell it for six months, let's say, or a year. Yeah, correct, that, that's basically yeah. correct. 
Yeah, she she went after him in this uh, interview. And quite honestly, like there's some things in there that Brad is saying is just not true. Um, He can fool the mainstream media, but man, there's documents upon documents out there of what Ripple, the company, has done. So it's just it's surprising um, to see him go up on stage and actually uh, not tell the truth. But I mean, people have to verify everything they see or hear these days, unfortunately. But this has sparked something of a Discord chat. That's right. A new chat that Crypto BitLord has started called Ripple One Discord Channel for those who want to recreate the Ripple network, essentially forking XRP. But only a handful of posters have replied, and the general attitude is skeptical. So we'll see if they decide to fork uh, XRP, but um, it does look like, you know, this whole XRP army community is getting tired of Ripple dumping on them. And then coming up here will be Swift in October, their big conference every year. And that comes with its own little pump and dump. And we'll see that pump here start pretty soon, I'm almost certain, because it happens every year. And yeah, I guess people that are holding the bags out there are getting upset with Ripple. Okay, next up we have Warner Music is collaborating with Dapper Labs, the company behind CryptoKitties, to create a new blockchain called Flow. According to a story in Forbes on Thursday, Dapper Labs has garnered $11 million in funding for the project, including investment from Warner. The round is led by Andreessen Horowitz with other major venture firms like Union Square Ventures, you know, your typical people out there. But what's most uh, interesting is that Warner Music is uh, collaborating with them. So as this starts to begin evolving, we'll start seeing, you know, bigger demands for network capacity. And they think this is going to flow into, that's right, this new blockchain called Flow. We'll see where it goes. But uh, I must say, seeing another big music company like this get involved with uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency is pretty sweet. And our last piece of news, Adam Ludwin is stepping down as CEO of Interstellar to head a new spin out. The company will be focusing on expanding Stellar's blockchain ecosystem and is named financial industry veteran Mike Kennedy, its new CEO for Interstellar starting September 15th. Now, we all know Adam Ludwin was the person who ran the blockchain startup chain before it merged with Lightyear last year to form Interstellar. So Ludwin will be starting this new company called Pogo, which has kind of been in stealth development within the Interstellar ecosystem for some time. But the spin out will look to connect different types of mobile wallets worldwide. And a prime example of that is an application that Stellar is uniquely positioned to support. And that is low friction, high liquidity, real time corridors for FX settlement between financial entities. And they hope that Mr. Mike Kennedy, as a new CEO of Interstellar, will bring on further adoption for the Stellar ecosystem. Yeah, and that's all we got in today's news. Yeah, a lot going on. All right, with that, let's get into interesting video of the day. Thriller podcast. Interesting crypto video of the day. You know, one of my favorite things to do on crypto Twitter is like look up these obscure Bitcoin and crypto videos. Seriously, I like to look at the mining ones, especially. I think it's so fascinating to see a group of people 
put together a whole mining, you know, warehouse and to see how it's built and to see how they run it. It's just really cool. I found a really interesting one that Bloomberg has created, and I think it's uh, quite fascinating. This is happening up here in Washington. Check it out. Right now, the world is basically in the middle of a second gold rush. But the thing is, it's not gold that people are actually after this time around. It's Bitcoin, the biggest, baddest cryptocurrency on the planet. But the thing about Bitcoin is that because it's a digital currency, you obviously can't just dig it out of the ground with a pickaxe. So to get a better sense of how cryptocurrency mining works, we're here in northern Washington to visit one of the biggest Bitcoin mines in the United States and to see what goes on behind the scenes. by solving a difficult math problem called a cryptographic hashing function. In the simplest possible terms, they're solving a puzzle that's generated by the Bitcoin network. About every 10 minutes, a new puzzle or block in the chain is released. The reward for solving that puzzle is currently 12 and a half Bitcoins. Working together, all the Bitcoin miners on Earth unlock about 1,800 Bitcoins each day, and about four-tenths of 1% of those are mined in this very room. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when we filmed this video, this Bitcoin mine generated about $70,000 a day. That's $2.1 million a month, all in this one room. These are ASIC processors, application-specific integrated circuits. The chip design is specifically to run the protocol that is Bitcoin blockchain. It's code, right? It's specifically a chip design to run that code at a much higher rate of speed. So what you have to understand about Bitcoin is it's a commodity. Most of the world doesn't understand it's actually code with an underlying technology value. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are decentralized with every transaction being recorded in the blockchain ledger. Bitcoin mining is essentially processing those transactions and adding links to the blockchain. Each link in the chain created every 10 minutes contains about 2,500 transactions. It's Okay, so how much money do you make every day is a function of not when we create it. It's a function of when we sell it. So what do we do? We manufacture it continuously. We hold it for when the price runs up and then we sell it. We take the proceeds and we expand our operation. Expansion is essential because as more Bitcoin miners come online and servers become more powerful, the puzzles become more difficult to solve. The Bitcoin mining algorithm continuously adjusts to keep the mining rate constant. One block in the chain, equaling 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And the Bitcoin algorithm only allows for the creation of 21 million Bitcoin, meaning the last Bitcoin will be mined in the year 2140. Why Wenatchee? Wenatchee is on the Columbia River. We are part of what's called the Mid-Sea Columbia string of hydroelectric dams. 
We have cheap, plentiful, green hydroelectric power right here. That means the cost of power is relatively cheap, about $100,000 a month right now. This facility is a two megawatt facility. We are building a 10 megawatt facility now, and we are breaking ground on a 20 megawatt facility, and then we also have eight megawatts worth of facilities under construction in two separate locations. And in addition to that, we are in the process of developing projects for another 80 megawatts all at this time. That growth is essential because the world is in the middle of a Bitcoin mining gold rush. Profit margins can be 70% and higher for mining operations, and miners big and small are looking to cash in. If you can get tech infrastructure closer to the source and not have to build out all the distribution network, you drastically reduce the cost and the bottleneck. So we are building this emerging technology here in Central Washington State because we're close to the source and we have a fiber backbone, an international fiber backbone that travels right through our valley. This region is naturally situated to be one of the international epicenters for this emerging technology we call blockchain. Yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing to think that you have multiple you know, mining locations across the United States. Uh, just Bitcoin mining, man. It's pretty sweet. It's really pretty sweet. And uh, one of the things that most people don't mention, but I want to clue y'all in, is the fact that we're coming up to a happening here, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. It's happening in May of next year. And if there's one thing that should be going up, it's going to be hash rate. And that's because for a limited time only, these miners are going to be able to mine up to 12 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. After that, it's going to drop down to six. So you best believe <laughs> we're at our most secure we've ever been leading up into the happening. Yeah, just something to keep in, to keep in mind when all people out there are telling you that, oh, no, the sky is falling. We're going to go down. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. We'll talk about it more in the main topic. But first, let's dive into coin talk. Markets are looking pretty greeny. Gotta love that. We got some interesting alts rising. Gotta love that also. And finally, Bitcoin looks like it's making a move. That's right. Coin talk. Starting now. Let's do it. I told you there is a way for you to stay kind of in this crypto space, but without having to look up anything. Yeah. What if I told you there's a way where you could watch this space from afar, see it ever evolving, see it from multiple angles and understand truly where everything is going? What if I <laughs> what if I told you you could listen passively while doing other things like mowing the lawn, driving your car to work, 
And not only would you be informed of what's going on with the cryptocurrency space, you'd probably be better off ahead. What if I told you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, what I'm talking about is our Thriller Crypto subscription. That's right. As you probably notice, we don't have any ads on this podcast. You know, we've never had a single ad, as a matter of fact, in all 325 episodes. Not a single one. Can't think of a single time we've ever said, yeah, we'll take that money. We're going to sponsor this. No, not a single chance. Never happened. We were on Patreon. But old Jack Conte kicked us off of Patreon. (laughs) I'm sure it wasn't Jack. But no, who knows? Maybe he's just not a fan of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or car. Who knows? But still, we got kicked off. What if I told you there was a way for you to get more Thriller Crypto, right? This guy, this show, but more of it for only $7 a month. Would you do it? Would you support this podcast? This little independent podcast, crypto, Bitcoin engine that could? Would you help us pass the finish line and meeting our goals of being self-sustainable, helping little old car become an independent media company, right? Would you help? Would you be willing to help? Well, if you'd like to, head over to ThrillerCrypto.com and, uh, oh, actually, no, head over to ThrillerCrypto.substack.com and sign up. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything, so you can get a little taste. So we do here. Give you a little taste. And then if you want to buy it, $7 a month. All right. With that, let's roll the disclaimer. Remember, Thriller's podcast does not give financial advice. He cannot tell the future, even if he thinks he can. He is just some dude trying to save the world one Satoshi at a time. All right, it's time for Coin Talk, my favorite part of the day. <laughs> we got a Bitcoin uh, price at uh, $10,327. We got a market cap of $263 billion. That's right, billion. We got Ethereum at $180. And you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at Cosmos, baby, because it's at $3.15, up 21%. Yeah, man, I'm all about some Cosmos because, man, I'm not going to lie. When Cosmos came out, you know, and they made this a big splash this year, and I think it was like May, and the thing just ran up, man. Call it a thriller effect. Call it whatever you want. It ran up. It got up to like $6, $5, whatever it was, you know. We made we made a little bit of money here on Thriller Crypto. Kept us sustainable over the, over, the, over the coming months, right? But I will say, though, looking at it now, it dropped all the way to $1.90 last week. $1.90. We're up a dollar twenty-five cents, ladies and gentlemen, on this little Cosmos coin that could. Yeah, up twenty-two percent, twenty-one point eight six percent to be exact. I, I think what we're seeing here is this little alt running, and we're probably going to get a little higher. You know what I'm going to say? That's right. One more. One more time. You know that, <laughs> you know, you know, one of these days Daft Punk's just going to sue the crap out of you. Know, you, know, you know, hopefully they don't. I'm going to be like, Daft, it's only, it's only, you know, 20 seconds of it. I'm going to say, you know what? Let me tell you about some Cosmos, Daft Punk. No, seriously, what I'm talking about here is, I don't know, but something's telling me, Crypto Friday, today is Crypto Friday. 
And somebody's telling me that we might see it launch here on Coinbase, man. That's the only thing I can see that's running up the price on this. Uh, There's nothing special. You know, maybe a couple new validators came online. But to be quite honest with you, I think it's I think it's Coinbase. I think there's rumors of it, you know, showing up uh, on their uh, on their platform here pretty soon. And we know it was part of their new 2019 Coinbase (laughs) eight that they released during the summer. So I think we're going to see Cosmos show up on Coinbase. This is the only reason why I see it pumping. I'm not saying there's any shenanigans going on or or chicanery. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is it looks like to me, you know, if it quacks like a duck, it it walks like a duck, then, you know what they say, it must be uh, soaring past $5 like a duck. (laughs) So I'm looking at Cosmos this weekend. That's something I'm focused on. I'm not buying anything right now from Cosmos. I've already bought it, you know. And, uh, you know, I saw it go down. <laughs> it was tough seeing it go down, but seeing it rise back up is just as pleasing, quite honestly. Uh, anything else out there that's got my mind at ease? Um, no, not really. Um, that's pretty much it. Looking at Bitcoin, a lot of people are discussing um, the possibilities that Bitcoin is heading into this bear market. I don't I don't think that's possible. Um, I, I just don't. Uh, we talked about it yesterday on the subscription podcast, and it just doesn't seem likely that we're going to see Bitcoin crash back down to 3K. There's a lot of permabulls out there expecting, you know, 3K Bitcoin or 8K Bitcoin or even 7K or even 6K Bitcoin. To be quite honest with you, I, I think the lowest we can go is, you know, 9,600. I, I really do. Um, I, I don't see us getting um, back down to lower than 8K, if that. Yeah, I just don't see it happening. I mean, quarter by quarter, we've been at the same kind of trajectory that we were in 2017. Um, I think if we were going to drop, it it would have happened already at this point. Um, So I I don't see us going back down and retesting those lows. I could be wrong. You know, definitely could be wrong, but... It seems like the majority out there is, is is expecting this 8K, you know, kind of drop. Um, I don't I don't see it. I don't. Um, frankly, I'm not selling. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of other people out there that aren't selling their Bitcoin. Um, so who's going to sell their Bitcoin and risk, you know, um, risk it? I, I, I just don't see that happening. Uh, maybe if it was like a, you know, dire times, maybe if there was like a financial crisis that actually just like happened in front of us and people needed cash and they had to sell their Bitcoin for that. Yes, I could probably see it at that point. Um, but even then, that, that would only happen momentarily and then it would rise back up. So even if if even if people are right out there and saying, hey, the herd is saying, oh, we're going to get 8K Bitcoin, 7K Bitcoin, 6K Bitcoin, whatever. Um, I think that's going to cause a spike to get us above the upside. And the upside is only, we only need to get past like, I would say 10.7, you know, just underneath 11K to stay in this kind of trend going upwards, that momentum. So even if we get just above that, I think we'll be fine. So I think the longer we're kind of going this sideways action, the less likely we're going to go down. Um, I could be wrong, but I just don't, see it. And I've been in this space for quite some time now. I just don't see that happening. Not like that. Um, but I don't know. I'm buying more Bitcoin, man. 
dollar cost averaging in every week. I don't see the opportunity here. I mean, even if it did go down to 3K, oh man, open arms, right? Like, yes, please go down to 3K. I want to buy some more 3K, but I don't see anybody selling their Bitcoin. Um, Call me crazy. I just don't see it. Uh, Anything else here? No, those are the only two I'm looking at. I'm just looking at Cosmos this week and Bitcoin. I'm debating whether I should cash out some Cosmos, but I'm like, eh. Let's let this pig fly. Let's see how far I can go. (laughs) See how high I can go. I think it'll be fun. Okay, with that, let's get into the main topic. Today we are talking, that's right, Bitcoin's next bull run. Yeah, yeah. It's a a fairly, you know, newsworthy topic, right? People are wondering, oh, we're going back down. There's no bull run in 2019. We even got uh, (laughs) freaking Thomas Lee out there, Funstrat Professional. Um, telling everybody, oh, unless the stock market goes up, then we'll see Bitcoin go up. Dude, come on, man. <laughs> like, where you been, man? <laughs> like, are you watching this? Are you paying attention? I just, I don't know. Something about that guy just freaks me out. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Uh, he, he just freaks me out because every time he tries to pro- uh, project something or even uh, tell the space something or where Bitcoin's going, he's always wrong. I can't think of a single person that's more wrong than him. And the funny thing is the media just covers him. <laughs> like they give him front page news and it's like this guy's wrong every single time. So uh, usually if he's going the other way, I'm going that way because that's probably where it's headed. And that's why we're talking about Bitcoin's bull run. It's next bull run to be exact and the main topic today. So let's do it starting now. You like to hang
Bitcoin has soared so far this year. It's gone so up that the price has risen more than 200% since the beginning of the year. The 2019 Bitcoin price bull run was sparked by rumors and expectations that the world's biggest technology companies were finally jumping in to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Now, there are several big data analysts out there that study the Bitcoin market and coin metrics and data analysis has found Bitcoin sentiment appears to be very similar to early 2017, just months before the Bitcoin price soared to almost 20,000. But this time around, people are wondering whether the price predictions are fair. And they're ranging from anywhere between 21K all the way up to 100K. All of which begs the question, is the current bull market any different from the last one? Have we learned our lessons from ICOs and pump and dump schemes? Or is this next bull run just another speculation bubble? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's important to note that any uh, cryptocurrency and frankly any in my view any newly emerging form of money it will evolve in stages and i think the stage where we are right now whether we like it or not it almost necessarily needs to be bootstrapped by sort of these speculative animal spirits so to speak um and i i have something pinned on my twitter which is this picture which kind of shows this progression and this is kind of a famous meme in the in the Bitcoin community, but essentially a lot of people, a lot of Bitcoiners, um, Vijay Boyapati, Dan Held, who you had on the show, Nick Zabo talked about this indirectly, but they believe that essentially a money that isn't supported by the government, but rather arises naturally in the free market, it needs to follow through these maturity cycles, starting from a collectible, then a store of value, then a medium of exchange, and finally, and then it matures into fully fledged money, including a unit of account and standard of deferred payment, etc. But for the time being, I think it's uh, everybody would agree with me that we're still between stages one and two, which are um, we are still between a collectible and a store of value. I mean, Bitcoin is a better store of value today than it was, say, seven or eight years ago, but it's still an imperfect one, though as it becomes bigger, its quality as a store of value product in, improves, right? 
So um, these cycles, they also map to sort of the level of speculation. Right now, where it, you can, it, 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 it's almost can be considered a purely speculative bet. I think if it gets 10, 15 times bigger from here, people will treat it more as an actual investment. And then if it gets 10 times bigger than that, people will actually consider it a savings vehicle. And then if it gets 10 times bigger than that, people will actually consider it like a very low risk, very sort of reliable way to park your wealth, et cetera. And so it's, it's on this curve. We're still extremely early. Um, this is also, this is like on a theoretical level. On a practical level, I think nobody would argue with me that one of the biggest, if not the biggest use cases of both Bitcoin, the settlement network, and Bitcoin, the currency unit, yeah. is essentially just trading on uh, like derivatives and like Bitcoin derivatives. It's actually it's actually very ironic and very meta. But the number one use case of permissionless money is permissionless gambling on its own price, uh, which is like it's like a circle within a circle within a circle. But essentially, to put it mildly, Bitmex is probably the biggest use case of Bitcoin at the moment. Now. We and a lot of evangelists hope that some years from now, hopefully sooner than later, but it will be actually used for many millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world to park their wealth and pay for things and can conduct commerce. But it's not ready for most of these things yet, especially the latter. Um, it, simply speaking, Bitcoin needs to be bigger before it's going to be useful for most things that people want it to be useful for. And we aren't there yet. And if we are ever going to get there, we want people to bet on Bitcoin. We want people to gamble on Bitcoin. So this, the fact that it's mostly used for speculation today, I think is actually desirable. The price to be higher, you want the market capitalization to be higher, you want the volumes to be bigger, you want the liquidity to be bigger. And even this isn't just because like all of us want to get richer. Um, it's also because if you just temporarily isolate the, like, as a store of value, Bitcoin is going, and as a medium of exchange, frankly, it's going to be, Bitcoin is going to be better at uh, doing those things, fulfilling those needs, um, if, it's, if it's bigger. Because the bigger it is, the more stable it's going to be. And that's one. Two, the bigger it is, the more liquid it's going to be. And three, and which is probably the most important thing, right now, the incentives to spend Bitcoin or sorry, the, there's a high disincentive to spend Bitcoin because nobody wants to be the famous pizza guy. A lot of people have spent Bitcoin in 2011, 2012 and frivolous things. And right now, as I'm sure you're aware, they regret it. Nobody wants to have that regret because Bitcoin arguably still has 300, 400, if not higher X to go from here. And so right now, I think uh, I genuinely believe that the most rational thing to do is simply to hold it. Um, and just not touch it. Just buy it, hold it, and that's it. That's all you can do. I think something needs to be um, valuable, uh, ideally um, highly so, before many people around the world are actually going to use it in, in commerce. Um, it's doesn't, it doesn't map perfectly, but like it, same with gold. It was used for, it was used as jewelry for a long time. It was also used as dowry. So people would give it to uh, like during weddings and stuff and pass it from generation to generation and simply wear it on their necks for millennia uh, before it was ever used like in business or, or to pay for things in a day-to-day -day manner. Um, now, technically, 
a store of value and a medium of exchange are inextricably linked and money is both. But I think that it's like these wave cycles and kind of one wave comes before the other. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's been a lot of writing in the Bitcoin space and in the Austrian econ space uh, about how um, the store of value or what other people call the reservation demand uh, hodling is essentially the same thing as reservation demand. Essentially, something needs to be very, very desirable before it's going to be uh, used in business. And the reason I say this is Bitcoin today is not very good. Uh, is not a very good unit of account or a medium of exchange. Yeah. And uh, it's not ready yet. It's not mature yet. And the reasons for this aren't only technological, but also simply monetary. Um, you want people want their day to day cash i.e. their day-to-day medium of exchange to be uh, to be very stable day-to-day and reliable and liquid. And um, more importantly, they want it to be more globally recognizable and locally recognizable. And we're not there yet. And that's the core of my argument. For us to get there, we want it to be bigger. And for it to get bigger, we want people to sort of gamble on it, gamble with it, gamble around it, etc. Because so, and when I say this, we need to understand it technically, Investment and speculation are one and the same. Yeah. No matter what you do, even like, and like even breathing or walking on the street are technically an act of investment, an act of speculation. And so uh, there's just like different sort of shades to it, right? But um, essentially, um, I like to kind of semi-jokingly say that Bitcoin today is essentially digital jewelry, uh, and it, we're still some ways away before it becomes "quote unquote" cash. The reason gold eventually became the chosen money around the world, and it's important to note that this happened uh, sort of independently in different sort of on different continents. Uh, you saw the same effect often uh, in separate civilizations that that never even connected before. And the reason this happened is the following, and that's kind of the main reason I think Bitcoin is valuable in the first place, is because all the other objects in the physical or on Earth they are very easy to inflate. Uh, Essentially, over thousands of years made it desirable to hold because your enemy can't print more. Your other empires can't print more. It's, it's, It's roughly equally difficult for all people of all kinds to find more units of it. And if you look at the supply curve or monetary policy, you can think about it, of Bitcoin, it's even stricter than that of gold which is why a lot of Bitcoiners believe that um, it will eventually sort of beat gold and absorb half, if not more, of all the value that sits inside gold. We believe that will flow to Bitcoin in the next couple of decades. During the peak of the 2017 cryptocurrency bull run, several skeptics compared it to the tulip mania of the 17th century, with most convinced that Bitcoin was a bubble. However, since 2017, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have come a long way in terms of maturity. And Bitcoin fundamentals are stronger than ever. Institutional interest is at an all-time high. And it seems mainstream adoption is on the rise, strengthening the argument for why 
Most of this market is not based totally on hype this time around. Earlier this month, blockchain.info reported that Bitcoin's hash rate, the speed at which a Bitcoin mining machine operates, reached a historical high of 74,000 terahashes per second. The Bitcoin blockchain is more secure than it has ever been, and breaching the network would require unimaginable computing power. Institutional involvement in the cryptocurrency space over the past year has been incredible. It is easy to argue that the 2017 bull run was largely fueled by retail investors. But maybe this time around, institutional investment in cryptocurrencies will be the next fuel that Bitcoin needs. Well, we're going to um, see some real innovation around the use of blockchain for non-financial use cases. Uh, so things around making the financial markets more efficient on clearing and settlements. We're going to see some attempts to create efficiencies around uh, identity and ownership uh, around uh, rights, digital rights. We're going to see improved infrastructure around the on-ramps and the off-ramps of the asset class. We're going to see the asset class itself, you know, grow well beyond the. I think it's about three hundred billion dollars today. I think it's, you know, in the next five years, it'll capture a a meaningful portion of the eight trillion dollar gold market. And I think we're going to see some interesting capital formation models emerge around the world, hopefully in the U.S., but certainly around the world, around mechanisms to invest in people's ideas and projects that are um, that are blockchain based. I would say over the past couple of years, there's, I think it started with awareness and education, which I think we're doing a pretty good job as an industry, creating awareness and bringing up to speed institutional investors. Up until recently, there have not been custody solutions that have checked all the boxes for an institutional investor. And, you know, efforts like BACT and some others, you know, Fidelity and, and, and folks like that, I think are checking those boxes. So the average listener, why is custody important? Well, I think for institutional investors, it's from a legal and from an accounting and from a compliance perspective, there are strict rules around how assets are, are held for a, a fiduciary on behalf of their investors. And so, you know, you either you comply with those rules or you don't. And, and up until, you know, recently, there just weren't custody solutions that checked all the boxes. And then so, so you know, it's education, awareness, it's custody, and then it's the trading infrastructure itself. Um, you know, if you're going to be, you know, trading this asset class, institutional investors need to make make sure that the technology is secure. They have to make sure that it's going to be up 24-7. They have to make sure that the people behind it are uh, fully compliant. And so we're, you know, we're now entering that phase. If you think about where the cryptocurrency Bitcoin space was in the summer of 17, prior to that bubble, there was quite a bit of skepticism from the institutional community. There were not custody solutions. There were not the um, you know, institutional grade uh, trading platforms. There was limited compliance software. There were questions around kind of regulatory status. All that's been addressed. All has been addressed. And so really, I think it's it, we're, we're kind of entering a phase where the conversation when people talk about the digital asset class, it's not going to be, you know, as Kelly mentioned, you know, is it here to stay? Yes, it's here to stay. The conversation is going to be around, okay, what is the right allocation for an investor into this asset class and what is the best way to, uh, to deploy that capital?
To most, the thought of Bitcoin as a safe haven may sound completely absurd, given its volatility. However, a recent study by Grayscale Research Analysis projects the correlation between Bitcoin and macroeconomic developments, basically illustrating the use of Bitcoin as a hedge against political unrest and macroeconomic uncertainty. Even though Bitcoin does not really feature in the conventional list of safe havens, more people are relying on cryptocurrency as a hedge against movements in the traditional financial market. Correlation does not necessarily mean causation, but the key takeaway here is that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are becoming more popular among investors. Now, it is well known that central banks around the world are turning dovish. They're doing anything they can to stimulate their economies, either by cutting interest rates or printing more money. Now, while this has made investors rejoice for a short time, Bitcoin holders are confident that in the long term, Bitcoin will outperform fiat currencies. And if this becomes reality, well, then Bitcoin is probably the safest store value the world has ever seen. Which leads one to wonder, are we really seeing this next bull run happening in front of our faces? The first 10 years of Bitcoin, we've largely only seen a small amount of the speculation network effect take root. Maybe it'll take a few decades before we really get to like these other deeper network effects. You know, five years out, store value is probably going to be a significant use case with Bitcoin. It's already got a multi-hundred billion dollar market cap. We've got central bankers like talking about it with very odd body language, like they're stressed out. We got regulators that are heavily involved in the space now. We have legislators like in Wyoming, the work that Caitlin Long and I have been working on getting these 13 bills passed and then other jurisdictions that are, you know, both in the U.S. and internationally that are passing different laws. So, you know, all this stuff is enabling because we have a lot of financial repression that happens through draconian laws like money transmission laws and money service business laws and know your customer and anti-money laundering and like all these things trammel money in an attempt to bring it more and more under the jurisdiction kind of kicks the door down. You know, we've had a nationalized, we've had a largely socialized monetary unit that's contrary to the fundamental law of the land. The Federal Reserve note is unconstitutional. The Constitution, it uses the phrase dollar twice, once in the slave clause, which was highly contentious. So the term dollar needs to have a definition, which it had gotten the 1792 coinage act, which is 371.25 grains of fine silver, 0.999 fine silver. And it's the states that make property rights, you know, and remedies. No state shall make anything but gold or silver a tender and payment of debts. One, having the federal government make anything legal tender they're not given that in Article 1, Section 8. They're not given that power. And if states make anything legal tender, they can only make gold or silver legal tender under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. Guess what? That's unconstitutional. Well, how did it get that way? Executive Order 6102 
Franklin Roosevelt had the federal government seize the gold. He attempted to pack the Supreme Court under the issue of economic substantive due process. Then we had the legislators outlaw ownership of gold and silver. They didn't re-legalize it till 1974. And after 1974, in the case City versus Dover, it squarely framed the issue of what is a dollar, and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the case. And so we have all three branches of government abdicate, like, shirking their responsibility to uphold the Constitution when it comes to monetary repression. And so what's the average citizen supposed to do when it comes to claiming the right to protecting private property? And it does all of these things at a much lower cost than anything else that has been invented in human history. You can now store $100 million and it can't be confiscated. It can't be seized. It can't be impeded. You store $100 million of gold. Guess what? They can come and kill you and take your gold. It doesn't work that way with Bitcoin. It's just going to force the issue for society in so many different ways. You know, once you take away that power over money from the state, invest it with the individual, that begins to change tons of things. And it does that because it's changing the economics of violence at a fundamental level. It's enabling the individual to secure protection for their private property at a much lower cost. And as a result, they don't need to acquire protection services at the cost that they were paying to the nation states. You know, because that's one of the reasons that the individual hires nation states, supposedly. And this this is the other side of the path is everybody just a slave. People are either going to have sound money and determine their own financial destiny because they have private property and can perform economic calculation, or they're going to be slaves to political elites. They're going to starve to death eventually because society won't be able to perform economic calculation in order to determine how goods should be deployed in society for productive uses. Humanity is now getting forced to choose with Bitcoin. It's going to be a very exciting future to figure out how this gets played out. I mean, five years from now, you know, I don't think it's going to be that big of an issue. But think about it. Ten years ago, how big of a role did YouTube play in national elections? Like not that big. 15 years ago, it didn't play any role because it didn't exist. You know, and now YouTube is changing elections at a fundamental level. But we're talking about something that might even be more powerful than YouTube. We're talking about the money. How I kind of look at it is this could be a real doozy of one, you know, that'll blow your hair back. Because you look at the log chart of Bitcoin and I mean, I put out a tweet, you know, we could be looking at 100 to $250,000 per Bitcoin by the time this particular bull market comes to resolution. Where are we currently at with it? You kind of named the mayor multiple. You know, I'd put out on several different interviews that I'd done kind of the basic methodology, but you put a name to it. It's really not something I do myself, but it's out there now, right? And so we look at that mayor multiple and you'd mention like $3,000 Bitcoin. Well, when there was $3,000 Bitcoin, there it was like 0.5 on the mayor multiple. And now we're at like 2.4 on the mayor multiple. And the mayor multiple is you take the current price divided by the 200-day moving average. And that gives you a, a relative price of like 0.5 or 2.4. And then you can look at standard deviations in terms of, of that relative price. And that helps you understand like, well, is Bitcoin more expensive relative to its past history? Bitcoin's a little bit expensive right now, whereas when it was 0.5, it was really cheap. You know, I totally agree that equal opportunity moneymaker here, you know, what you going to do? Like, let's make some money. Like, that's the first network effect of Bitcoin. 
And so you want to buy it when it's a low Mayer multiple because you have a greater probability of it going up. So you wanted to buy it when it was 3000 bucks a few months ago. <laughs> and now, you know, might be a good time to necessarily not buy it <laughs> and maybe sell some of it. And I actually use the Mayer multiple a lot in how I decide to trade Bitcoin because, you know, I like to trade it because you can make more money doing that. You can make more Bitcoins. But I'm more about, you know, understanding the sound money aspect of this because I don't want to live in 1956 Czechoslovakia. I don't want to live in Venezuela where we don't have protection of property rights and people starve to death. I want people to be happy, healthy, free, and have monetary sovereignty. Those are core values to me that are more important than making money because this fight isn't necessarily about making money. It's about these fundamental human and civil rights. Money's power. With power and with money, you can accomplish a lot of good in the world. Hopefully, we can accomplish a lot more good than the people who currently have that money and power. You know, one of the best quotes I heard this week was from Nipsey Hussle. He said that Satoshi Nakamoto was a genius and he checkmated this whole monetary game from the get. Yeah, it really it really stuck to me to think that uh, something like that could be fixed with technology. It's pretty interesting. Okay, hope you guys enjoyed the show. I do want to thank Sagar Chaudhry for help with this episode. He provided a tremendous amount of research in uncovering what this next bull run will look like. I appreciate him. And with that, let's get on to the end of the show.
Throw Crypto is Dundies. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Bitcoin's next bull run. I think it's very possible and probable that we could see something happen here in the short term. I know right now, everybody in the crypto space at least is stacking their sats, right? That's a big hashtag in crypto Twitter. I just think you got to do what's best for you and your family. Whether that's uh, buying Bitcoin and saving the world or stacking fiat and losing it all. This is the end.